after a worship service beginning like that, man, I'm excited to see what God's going to do with the truth of his word. Wow. That was truly a blessing to worship with you folks today. Ah, boy. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. I really wanted to get through all of chapter 2, but just couldn't do it. There's just too much content in the first 12 verses, so we'll continue and complete chapter 2 next time we're together next Sunday. But uh, beginning in, uh, again, chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, let's go ahead and pick up now in verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance into you, that it was not in vain, it was not worthless, it was not empty, it was not useless. When we came to you, we brought value. When we came to you and left, there was value left behind. There was a purpose accomplished with our arrival in Thessalonica. But even after that, we had suffered before we arrived. Now, remember last week I told you there was suffering in Thessalonica, right? There was a riot caused. Uh, Jason and his household were dragged out into the streets. Probably they were fearing their lives. Word had been received, though, before the riot, and the Apostle Paul and the others got out before the riot, so all they had was Jason and his family and his friends, so they let them go. But before they even got to Thessalonica, they were at Philippi. Now, if you know anything about Philippi, you know the story of the Philippian jailer. And the reason there was a jailer was because Paul was in jail. But it wasn't just jail. They actually beat these guys. Paul and Silas were beaten, then put in prison falsely without cause. The reason we know that is because there was an earthquake. The jailhouse opened. The apostle Paul, Silas, they didn't exit. The jailer thought he lost everyone, was about to stab himself with his own sword. And Paul says, stop, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. The jailer is so grateful. He says, come to my house. I'm going to treat you better there than I can here. Thank you so much. I didn't have to kill myself. Well, the apostle Paul leads him and his family to the Lord. The next day, the leaders finally sit down and look at the, the court case, the trial, the documents, and they say, wait a second, we imprisoned him falsely and we beat him falsely. So they sent a messenger to the house of the jailer and said, uh, please ask Paul to politely move on his way. We're not going to put him back in prison. And Paul said, I'm not going until the leaders show up and apologize to me personally. You got to love Paul. So the leaders show up and say, we're so sorry. Now will you leave? Paul says, now I'll leave. That was Philippi. He goes into Thessalonica, and it's not much better. That's the rioting. That's his death. His life is at stake again. He leaves Thessalonica, goes to Berea. The people in Thessalonica follow him there and cause more havoc. Paul is going through some very difficult times. What brings him through? Well, obviously God, right? Christ was with him in that prison in, in Philippi. Christ is with him. The jail opens. He's, he, he's able to exit. He doesn't. Leads the jailer and his family to the Lord. God is with him. In Thessalonica, God is with him. It's weeks before the riot, but during the riot, Paul again is allowed to exit. In Berea, same thing. Nothing happens to him. He's not imprisoned again. So God is with him, right? That's what gets him through. Well, folks, God's with you. Paul doesn't have any more of God than you have. God didn't give Paul uh, 10% more of himself. No, God is with you just as he was with Paul. So how was Paul able to get through his trials when God was with him? Yes, but God's with you, and yet it seems so difficult. I'll tell you something else Paul had that you can have, maybe you do have, and just don't know you have it. Paul had purpose. Now, you may have purpose. My question is, does your purpose find its rest in God? If you were to write your purpose down, my purpose for living, would God in any way be included in that? My purpose for what I did last week and my purpose for what I'm going to do next week, is God in any way included in that? Is God's kingdom in any way included? They say, well, Pastor Russ, we don't teach at your school. We're not pastors. How can we put God and include God in our purpose when we don't teach in a full-time ministry? You don't have to. God wants to be included wherever you're at. 
whether it's Mid-State Christian Academy, Meriden Hills Baptist Church, your home, you work from home, a job site, it doesn't matter where you are and where you find yourself this week, does your purpose include God? If it doesn't, the presence of God is enough, but you may not think it's enough. I think what gets Paul through many of his trials is both the presence of God and the purpose for God that he lives. And he deals with that here in chapter 2. Now, we're going to read the rest of the verses as I preach through them. That's all I'm going to read now. You can read them on your own. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll preach through the rest. But this morning's message is titled, The Worthy Life. The Worthy Life. Where did uh, that come from? Well, in this text, we find that the Apostle Paul, as he's talking to those in Thessalonica, and as he's stating his heart and his goal for them, after he had had the influence and the impact in their life for just a short time, in verse 12, this is the last verse of this morning's text. Let's jump to the end, and it says, That ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. He says, I'm not with you anymore. I don't need to be with you anymore. But you can still walk worthy with God, whether I'm there or not. That was my heart while I was with you. That is my heart now while I'm away from you. Walk worthy of God. What does it mean to be worthy? It means to have value, to have purpose, to mean something. Now, these folks in Thessalonica, they weren't evangelists. They weren't apostles. They weren't missionaries. They were people who had families and who had jobs. And the Apostle Paul said, while you're raising your family, while you're going to your jobs, walk worthy of the calling God has given you. And what calling is that? That calling is always to glorify God. That calling is always to point others to God, the glory of God and the souls of men. That is the calling of every believer for thousands of years. That is the calling of every believer afar and near. That is the calling of every believer, young and old, man and woman, full-time ministry and not. That is our calling, the glory of God and the souls of men. And you could accomplish that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, the age does not matter. You can bring glory to God, and you can bring souls to God. Souls you will meet that I will never meet. People that you will come into contact with that will never know me personally. I can't be all things to all people. God can, and then God can use you to reflect him to the ones in your life. The worthy life. Are you living it? Does your life have value? You say, well, yes, Pastor Russ. My life has value to my spouse. I hope so. My, wife has va- my life has value to my children. I would hope so. My life has value to my workplace. Hmm. You may think that until you leave and you find out how quickly they replace you. <laughs> Does it? In a week or less, they replace you before you left. My life has value. I'm sure it does. I'm asking to who? Well, does my life have value to God? Look, all life is valuable to God. Even the unsaved are valuable to God. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking, are you as a person valuable to God? You better believe it. So much so that God sent his son to die for you. That's how valuable you are. I am asking, does your life have purpose that fulfills the calling God has placed in your life and therefore has value to God's kingdom? Does your life have value to God's kingdom? Would God's kingdom in any way be impacted by the way you are living your life? Has it been impacted by the way you have lived your life? And will it be impacted by the way you plan to live your life? The answer may be yes. My next question is, good or bad impact? Because some of us impact God's kingdom not the way we hope, not the way God desires. The worthy life impacts God's kingdom positively. Not only bringing the lost to God, but bringing the saved closer to God. Your life can have worth, can have value, can have purpose, but the choice is yours. They say, Pastor Russ, no, it's not. It's God's choice. Will God give my life value? God has already placed all the value on you he needs, that you need. The Holy Spirit dwells within you if you're saved. His son died for you. He has placed the, the price on you, and it is high. It is far above anything anyone could ever pay. You are priceless to God. So you as an individual have been given value by God. Now, what will you do with the life that he's granted you? Live it for yourself. Waste it. 
on yourself? Waste it on others. You say, Pastor Russ, how can I waste it on others? If I'm spending it for others, it's not wasted. Oh, no. Just because you spend it on something doesn't mean you got something in return for it. You have money. You spent it. Did you waste it? All too often, yes. (laughs) Money spent can be money wasted. A life spent even for others can be wasted. Because ultimately, every one of us in this room is going to heaven or hell. And regardless of what impact you had on people's lives now, ultimately, eternity is at stake. And if you spent your life on others and they still go to hell, did you really accomplish much? You can't save people. Only God can. You can't push someone to salvation. They have to make that decision for themselves. But are you spending your life in a way that does push them to God? The unsaved to salvation and the saved to humility and service. The worthy life, Christian. That is what I want to challenge you with this morning. That is what we're challenged with here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that is what we're going to be looking at for the next 25 minutes to 30 minutes. We have three points. A ministry of humility, a ministry of sacrifice, and a ministry of love. If you want to have the worthy life, this is what you need as a believer. Obviously, the worthy life for God's kingdom must begin with salvation. If you are not saved, if you do not know what it means to have faith in Christ, if you do not understand that salvation is not something you earn, something that was given to you, if you do not realize that salvation was given to you by Christ when you have faith in him in recognition that you need a savior, you are a sinner, he's the only one that can change that fact about you, and in repentance, you trust him to do so. You have faith that it is Christ that saves you. Faith that God brings you from sin to salvation, from destruction to eternal paradise. When you have faith that it is Christ, God's Son, who does that, now you enter into the opportunity for the worthy life. Salvation was free. Christ paid the cost to you. Nothing you had to do except it was already done. But the worthy life, that's going to cost you. That isn't free. The worthy life will take a lot from you. It will require of you humility. You will have to give up your pride. It will require of you sacrifice. You will have to give up of yourself, what's left after pride's been gone. And it will require of you love. Not love as you define it. Not love that makes you feel good. Love as defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love that does not envy. Love that holds no bitterness. Love that is, uh, does not uh, thrive in unrighteousness, does not dwell in, in sin, but love that loves truth. Love that loves right. Love that is kind and impatient, and patient. Love that is long-suffering. Love that doesn't just say, but love that acts. In the New Testament, we're told about love, and we're told about righteousness, justness, and you don't separate the two. We're told that those who truly call themselves religious, those who want to live a life of religion that reflects God and a true belief system, we are told that true religion is this, to care for, to take care of, to not ignore the needs of the widows and the fatherless. And in the first century, those are the two groups who would have the least opportunity to care for themselves, young children with no dads and women whose husbands have died. There was no social security system. There was no Medicare, Medicaid. There was no insurance at all. You didn't have a husband or a father who could care for you. Your life was struggling. Like it or not, in that culture, that's what it was. And so we're told, the church is told, you truly want to reflect God in a righteous way? Then show love to people. Don't say it. Show it. Act it. Do it. Saying it's not enough. We're going to see that this morning. Let's start with number one, a ministry of humility. 
So in verse number three, he says, for ex, uh, exhortation, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. All right, so that word guile has the idea of manipulation, uh, trying to get someone to do what you want for your own reasons, not leading them, guiding them, directing them, but manipulating them. They are unknowingly going in a direction they're not aware of through your uh, strong ability to, to manipulate them and to deceive them. He says, that's not how we led you. That's not how we directed you. In verse 4, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory. Neither of you, nor yet of others, who we might have been burdensome as the apostle of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse, nurse cherisheth her children. Verse 2. But even after that we had suffered before, were shamefully entreated, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel. In verses 2 through 7, you see a strong, strong evidence of humility. The Apostle Paul, Silas, the others, they said, we weren't there to get glory. We didn't want it. We weren't looking for it. We didn't ask praise from you. We didn't expect from praise from you. We didn't, we didn't accept praise from you. We were there for God, not ourselves. For God. And ultimately, for God, but secondly, for you as we served God. It was not for us. I see humility bathed in their ministry. But then in verse 2, it stated, but while we were with you, we were bold. Number one, a ministry of humility, letter A, humility is powerful when paired with boldness. Understand this. Someone can be humble, yet still bold. Someone can be on the outside, uh, what seems to be meek, what seems to be uh, um, behind living in the shadows, and yet still be very prideful within. You see, pride doesn't require someone to be on the front. Humility does not require someone to be behind the curtain. Humility is not a position. Humility is not where you find yourself in a room. Humility is not sitting down when everyone else is standing up. Humility is not in the back room when everyone else is in the front room. Humility is a belief system. Humility is a lifestyle that your needs are a priority to me. That's humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride states my needs are the most important priority to me. That's pride. It evidences itself in a variety of ways. doesn't always look the same in all people. But pride is, I'm most important to me. Humility is, someone else is most important to me. Their needs are a priority. And for the Christian living in humility, that should be God. God is the most important. His needs are my priority. His wants, his desires that's my priority. And then God makes it very clear what is his priority. God says, okay, if I'm your priority, people are my priority. Now make people your priority. So for the Christian, humility is saying, I'm no longer my priority. Not that you don't have needs, not, you, not that you won't address your own needs. How can you help others when you are not taking care of yourself? But you are not first priority any longer. Others are. Why? Because God is first. And God says, since I'm first, others need to be second. That's humility. That doesn't mean you have to be quiet about it. It doesn't mean you have to be the one at the back of the line every time. Sometimes a line needs someone at the front leading them boldly. It doesn't mean you're at the back of the crowd. Sometimes the crowd needs someone standing up saying, hey, I've got the answer. Follow me as I lead you to Christ. Not follow me to make me look good. Follow me so you can find good. His name is God. Sometimes, oftentimes, in my opinion, the greatest mixture of the Christian life is humility, sacrifice, and love paired with boldness. Stop being so shy about the truth that has changed your life. Stop being so shy about the God who has loved you from sin to salvation. 
Stop being so shy about the fact that you know what eternity holds and you know how someone can get to paradise. Stop being so shy. Be bold in your belief. Be bold in your choices that reflect God. Be bold in the character that you show others, and when they see, it shows God. Be bold. Stand up. Stand out. Speak up. Speak out. And do not ever assume that boldness is prideful. No, pride is the placement of your priorities. Boldman, boldness, that is where you stand so others can see what you believe. Letter B. Humility does not deceive or manipulate. We see that in verse 3. He says, hey, we were with you. Uh, we didn't deceive you. We were not living in uncleanness. We were not uh, trying to manipulate. Verse 5, for neither at any time used we flattering words. We weren't there to, to say things that made you feel good so you would follow us, nor did we have a cloak of covetousness, meaning we weren't there to get something from you. We were there to give something to you. Covetousness is the idea that I want more than I've got. Specifically, I want what you've got, and I want to have it. And a cloak of covetousness would mean whatever I do, whoever I am, whatever I believe, it's covered by covetousness. I preach because I want more from you. I go and help you move. I go and help you uh, with your life because I want something from you. Everything is covered. Everything is cloaked in what can I get out of you. You have friends like that? You have friends like that? You have coworkers like that? You got a boss like that? They'll say nice things to get something out of you, right? As soon as they walk in your office, as soon as they come into your personal space and say, hey, hey, how you doing? You've been doing such a great job this week. Immediately, some of you are bold enough to say it. The rest of you are thinking it. What do you want? Right away, right? Because you know the world is full of people who will say to get, who will do to get. That's pride. Pride is I'm the priority, and what I want is the priority. Humility says, no, I'll be bold, and I'll come and ask, but I'm going to say it to give. How was your week? How are things? Are you able to afford this? Are you able to go there? Why are you asking? Because I want to help you if you can't. <laughs> no. No one wants to help me. Yeah, I want to help you. <laughs> what do you want? I want nothing. I have everything I need. I don't. Covetousness, covetousness does not clothe my statement. I want to help you. I can't tell you how many times our church has helped the community. I, I don't keep track. I've lost count of how many times people have messaged me, called whatever, uh, posted on Facebook saying, hey, that's great what you're doing for the community. Where can we donate? And I keep telling them, you don't need to. We're not doing this to get anything from you. Uh, God, I, tell, I say we have a great church uh, through the church community, we have everything that we need, and we are here to give to the community, not take from them. You say, Pastor Russ, what's wrong with you? Let them give. Here is my concern. If I was to take, even if it's like, well, they truly, sincerely want to give, if I was to take, immediately someone would see that and say, aha, I knew it. That was what you wanted all the time. You wanted the 10 bucks that they gave you for an event that cost 10000 Come on, guys, seriously. But they're going to think that. Why? Because they want to think that. And I'm not willing to give them any opportunity to think that. For 10 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks, doesn't matter. I'm not giving them the opportunity. We are here to give, not to take. Humility doesn't manipulate or deceive to get. Humility serves sincerely to give. And therefore, you don't need to be afraid of the lie, of the truth. You don't have to say something to get someone to do something because that's not your goal. You say what is true because you know what you have to give them is what they need. A ministry of humility doesn't manipulate. Letter C, humility, I love this one, is not controlled by the fear of man. Verse 4, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. We're not afraid of you. We fear God. <laughs> we don't care what you think. We care what God thinks. We don't want your praise. We want God's praise. Verse 6, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse. 
you could have given, we could have taken, we said no because we didn't want you to think we were there to take. Humility isn't controlled by the fear of man. When I was younger, I cared a lot about what people think. I really did, a lot. Bothered me. I knew it was wrong. I knew that when I cared what they thought, what they thought controlled what I did. I saw, I saw the domino effect. I saw one thing led to another to another. And I saw that sometimes I, were making, I was making choices literally because I was scared of what people would say or do if I didn't make that choice or if I made a different choice. I was there. And I did not like where I was. Hard to step away from that place. Not liking it usually isn't sufficient. Not liking it isn't usually enough. You just like yourself less. You despise yourself, but you just keep doing the same thing, which is whatever people want you to do. You maintain the same behaviors, even though you know it's not good. Why? Because you're afraid of what people will say or do if you change. The fear of man has gripped your heart, has infiltrated your mind, and you cannot get it out. And then, and then I discovered humility. Something that was not what you might say a close friend of mine throughout most of my childhood. My teen years had no interest in humility. As a young adult even, humility was something I didn't truly grasp. I didn't even, if you asked me to define it, I couldn't define it for you. I knew it was good. I knew that God was humble. I wasn't sure how it would look in my life. Once I discovered that humility was just taking myself off of the top tier, that humility was stepping down. <laughs> and then when you step down, taking one further and kneeling down. When I recognized this was humility, the control people had over me was gone. I cared for them. I cared about them. Their opinions no longer controlled me. Their likes and dislikes no longer determined what I was going to do or not do, say or not say, go or not go. Now that I had taken myself off of the pedestal and I wasn't working for the praise, living for the praise, preaching for the praise, because there were moments in my younger years where I was, when I took myself down, now I could preach for God, live for God, worship for God, serve for God. And people could say what they want, they can do what they want, but those looking for God, my hope was they would find him reflected in my life. That was my hope. That's my goal. They can't control what I do. My hope is that they'd be influenced by what I do. But if they're not, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is a ministry of humility. I'm here. God's there. And I'm going to serve those who want to be served. I'm going to help those who want to be helped but I can't help them if they control me. You can't help those who control you. They will help themselves with you. It's not the same thing. You want to help someone? You've got to eliminate the control they have over you. Otherwise, you're not the right person to help them. Step away from their life. You will do better away from them than with them if they control you. You say, well, Pastor Russ, they're really important to me. I don't want to step away. All right, then the other answer is embrace humility, step down, and eliminate the control they have over your mind and your heart. The fear of man brings a snare, destroys. The fear of God brings wisdom. Humility is your answer. You want a worthy life? You can't have it in pride. A life that brings value to God's kingdom, you can't have it in pride. The Bible warns that if you have pride, what follows is destruction. You will impact the kingdom of God. You will bring a piece of destruction to God's kingdom if you bring pride into it. Stop with the pride. You are not as important as you think you are. You are not as valuable as you think you are in the sense of what you think you bring to the table. You're not nearly as good as you think you are as a person, or at anything. God is the answer. And if you really, really want to see change, then show people God. You can't change them. Number two, a ministry of sacrifice. Verse eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, meaning there is a connection the Apostle Paul had with them. It wasn't just a shallow, I kind of like you, I'm here because I need to be, and I'm just going to be polite to you while I'm here. He said, no, I had a desire 
to have an affection, a connection with you for the short time we were together, which was just about a few weeks. I mean, the Apostle Paul has to be a pretty loving guy. Two and three weeks go so deep, so fast with this new church, this new body of believers. I mean, he's just kind of like open heart to everyone. We desire to have this close connection with you, he says. In verse 8 again, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. <laughs> what do you need that I've got? It's yours, the Apostle Paul basically says. Like, I'm not just talking money. I'm not talking clothing. By the way, he says, while we were there, we, did, we worked a second job so that we didn't collect money from you. You need the money more than we need it. We can get a job. We'll work it. Because, again, we want to serve you. We want to give to you. We want to sacrifice for you. And you need my soul? It's yours. That does not mean he's selling his soul to the devil. It does not mean he's being possessed by anyone. It means what is more valuable than the human soul? What is more valuable to you than your soul and the soul of your family, who you really are? You could say, I'd give my arm. Hey, that's pretty impressive. Would you really? But that's pretty impressive. But would you give your soul? It doesn't mean you'd go to hell for them. It means you'll die for them. That's what the Apostle Paul is stating here. When he says, even our own soul, he is stating, we were willing to die for you. Someone may say, prove it. The Apostle Paul says, no problem. Look at my history. My history proves it. I went to jail for the church. I was stoned for the church. I was shipwrecked not one time, but three times for the church. I was attacked from within by the Jews and the church for the church. I was attacked from without, the unbelievers, for the church. He said, I went hungry for the church. I was broke for the church. He said, my history proves my statement. I'm willing to die. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. The Apostle Paul did not die of old age in a bed, comfortable, surrounded by friends and family. He died in prison. He was actually in prison multiple times. At the end of the book of Acts, we find him imprisoned, and it seems mostly alone. Not a whole lot of people surrounding him. Then we come to the book of 2 Timothy. That is not written during his first imprisonment. That is later at the end of his life. He's imprisoned in Rome again. And at that book, he basically states, it's over. I know it's over. <laughs> There's a couple of books that he writes at the end of his life, imprisoned a second time in Rome. And he says, I'm alone. No one here is with me. Those that were abandoned me. They're gone. But I know where I'm going. Heaven, to see my God. I've lived my life for him. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished the faith, the work. I lived a worthy life. And I'm willing to end this worthy life by giving it to God for the church. How about you? Pastor Russ, yes, I would die for the church. Hey, good to know. I'll put your name down. What I'd rather know is are you willing to live for the church? I don't mean live for Meriden Hills. Please do not misunderstand that. Do not live for me. Do not live for the ones around you. Live for the church, God's church. Live a life worthy of God's kingdom that impacts and influences his church whether it's Meriden Hills or a church down the road or another state, because there's a lot of great Christians in the world and a lot of great churches right now worshiping just as powerfully as we saw this morning, all right? It doesn't have to be just Meriden Hills, but will you live a life for God's church? And if God asks, can you state honestly like Paul, I would die also for you. A ministry of sacrifice. Letter A. When their eternal life is at stake, our mortal life is a fair trade. There. Who's there? Anyone's, really. Right? When, when, the, when the eternal life of the other is at stake, someone who's unsaved specifically, someone you know is going to hell, if my death can in some way assist them to being saved, that is a fair trade. Because I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. It's not really, in my opinion, a trade at all. That's a, that's a no-brainer to me. Now, how much more, though? If my life, if trading my life can assist the unsaved to salvation. 
You see, you can only die once, you know, right? So once, once, that, once you traded that card and you're not getting it back. Can your death affect someone towards salvation? Oh, it surely can, but only one time. So try, don't, don't be so honorable in your head that say, when that time comes, I will die. I will trade in that one-time card to see one soul saved. Hey, that's a beautiful, honorable thing to do, but don't think overly much on it. What can bring a whole lot more impact to the lives of others is not you necessarily dying for them in a moment, but you living for them. And that's what the world needs. That's what God's church needs. That's what the community needs. This community does not need Meriden Hills to die for them. There would be very little impact this community have if we all died for them. The impact, the real impact, is when this church lives for them, dies daily. Humility, not about me, about them. And daily placing ourselves off the pedestal and saying, hey, if we had to die for you, we would. We don't need to. Let's live for you. We're going to live. We're going to live for God's kingdom, furthering it in this community. That's where the real impact is, folks. But that takes sacrifice. Letter B. Sacrifice is painful. Make sure it is for a worthy cause. Verse 9, you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. That's how, that's how he describes his relationship with them. He says, hey, remember when we were there and how hard it was? Remember how difficult it was to work with you? And the Thessalonians are like, was it really that bad? I didn't know we were so bad. Oh, yeah, it was bad. The labor and travail that we had while with you. That word travail is a word used in comparison to a woman in labor. The physical pain she feels in childbearing, which is nothing compared to child rearing, I might say. But childbearing, the physical pain of childbearing, that's travail. And the Apostle Paul said, while we were in Thessalonica and seeing the birth of God's church there for the first time, it was like going through childbirth. And some of you ladies are like, he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He doesn't know nothing about childbirth. All right, fair enough. He gets it. He's just relating it to the pain he assumes must be happening when the woman is bearing a child. He says, that's what I went through. Travail, the labor, the pain, and yet I do it all over again. There are a lot of older pastors I don't agree with. Men that I know do things different than me. They think harder on certain philosophies than I believe is necessary. Dress, music, hair. They think harder on these things than I believe they need to. There's a lot of older men who would speak harsher on particular scenarios than I would. But I will tell you this. I respect a man who's serving God for 30 years. He doesn't have to agree with me for me to respect him. He doesn't have to do everything the way I do, look the way I look, cut his hair the way I cut his hair, wear the clothes that I wear. He doesn't have to. It's not required. There's a lot of men I would never be ever, ever be asked to preach at their church. There's a lot of men I wouldn't have preached at our church, but they have my respect. I'm not going to publicly demean them. Why? Because these men have suffered much for the cause of Christ. Sure. Some of it is of their own doing. But hey, that's every leader, including the one you're looking at now. A lot of my suffering is due to my own bad choices. All right, we're all in the same boat there. But I respect these men as much as I might disagree with them on issues that are of little importance, honestly, in the broad scope of eternity. I respect the fact that they have been through extreme pain and they're still standing and serving. God's people. How can you not respect that? <laughs> well, when you let pride get in the way and make little issues big issues and you lose sight of what's actually being done, then yeah, you can be disrespectful on the small things. I love the fact that there are men out there who've served for 30 to 40 years and I don't really care the fact that we're different. Are they serving God? Are they holding on to what is true about the Bible, salvation, eternity, then they have my respect. How about you, Christian? You want to live the worthy life? You don't need to look like me. I don't need to look like you. We don't need to have the same philosophy in all minor areas. The worthy life is one of sacrifice, but not just sacrifice, sacrifice for a worthy cause, because sacrifice will be painful. 
It's not painful. It's not sacrifice. It's a gift. Sacrifice isn't a gift. Sacrifice is something that is literally torn from you. You allow to be torn from you. And it hurts. But you look back and you say, but what was accomplished? I'll do it again. And I'll do it again. And I just described parenting. Because that is parenting. It hurts. The things your kids do, the things your kids say, the pains your kids feel, it hurts. A piece of you is torn on a regular basis. Raising children. Why? Because they're human. That's why. Raising a human is hard. It hurts. But you look at your child, you look at their eyes, and you'd say, I'd do it again. I'd give it again. I'd sacrifice again. Good thing, because you're going to need to. That will not just be a statement. You'll have to live that one. Letter C. Eliminate distractions from your testimony of Christ's love and truth. If you want to live the worthy life, eliminate the distractions from your testimony reflecting God. Verse 9, for the Apostle Paul, for Silas, for his group, he says, we would not be chargeable unto any of you. Taking money from them would have been a distraction from their sacrifice, from the humility, from their love. Taking money wasn't wrong. The church giving money to a spiritual leader to help support them financially is not wrong. But in this place, it would have been a distraction. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not willing for that to happen. Even something that is good, when it distracts, let's get rid of it. My heart for this church is that what we do for God would not have any distractions that keep the community from seeing it. None. Even things that are good. Things that we could have and would not be sin. Does it distract them from us showing God? Then we need to get rid of it. In your life, individually, what distracts your family, your children, your friends, your coworkers? What distracts them from seeing God in your life? Get rid of it. You want to live the worthy life. Why would you let something even that's good distract from the ultimate goal? the glory of God in the souls of men. Number three, we see the ministry of humility, the ministry of sacrifice, and finally, the ministry of love. Let's take a look now at verse number 10. Ye are witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. First Corinthians 13, again, as I started this message, talks about the comparison of love and justness, the comparison of love to righteousness, doing what is right. You cannot separate the two. When you look at First Corinthians 13, love is not an emotional, emotional Love is doing the right thing for people, uh, for the sake of people, for their benefit, for their success. That is the best form of love. When your actions push someone to success, not success that they want, success that they need. What does that person need to be successful emotionally? You will love them in a way that helps them achieve it. What will success look like for them to achieve uh, uh, financially, spiritually, physically? Your love will be actions that push them towards that. Well, in this case, obviously, it's going to be living a holy life. To show the church what a holy life looks like, letter A, love seeks to establish a healthy connection with others. He says, holy, justly, we behaved ourselves unblameably before you. Love wants a healthy connection. Not one that when you walk in the room, you're uncomfortable. Not one that when you talk, you don't know what to say, and, you, and you don't, you're not even sure what they are saying to you. A healthy connection is one that is uh, good for both of you. That's a healthy connection. Both of you benefit from that friendship, from that relationship, romantic or otherwise. That's healthy. When both benefit, and the Apostle Paul says, we want to be a benefit to you. And by the way, the church was a benefit to Paul when they served God. The, the, the Apostle stated more than one time, basically, we are overjoyed in seeing you serve God. That's what brings us joy. That's what benefits us, seeing you love God. That's the only benefit we want. You don't need to give us anything. Give it to God, and we do benefit from that. So, love seeks a healthy connection. Don't tell people you love them when you have a toxic relationship. You're just lying. 
You're lying to them. Don't tell the community you love them when you have a toxic relationship with the community. It's a lie. They see through it. They know you're a liar. They won't listen to anything you have to say. Look, just as the world is not saved doesn't mean they're stupid. Just because someone hasn't accepted Christ doesn't mean they see the deception, the blasphemy, the, the, the misbehavior of your own actions. If you say you love them, they're looking for a healthy connection because that's what love is. Parents, if you say you love your kids, then prove it. Is there a healthy connection with your kids, with your spouse? You say, well, I love her. I love him more than anyone else. Really? Then why is your marriage falling apart? Where's the healthy connection? That's love. Well, it's hard. You don't know them like I do. I don't need to. I'm not married to them. It's not my job to know them like you do. It's your job. But I'm telling you, it can't be done. It will take some work. It will take some sacrifice, and it will take some humility. But paired with love? Oh, yeah, you can have a healthy connection with them. How bad do you want it? Letter B. Love seeks to provide comfort and direction to others. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Remember, we're talking about the worthy life. Do you want to have a life that impacts people towards Christ? Well, then comfort them. Encourage them. That word exhortation means to encourage, to push them in a good direction. Love seeks to provide comfort and direction. There's a lot of parents that are really good at direction, and you stink at comfort. Like, you have no clue. You don't know what you're doing. You think comforting your child is patting him on the head or giving him, like, you know, ice cream or something. No. Comfort is being available to them. Comfort is listening to them. For some of your kids, embracing them is not comfort. It's awkward to them because God designed them to not like hugs. So do not assume, well, I comfort my kids all the time because I hug them all the time. That's not working for them. Figure out what your child needs to be comforted and do it. Same for your spouse. Not all adults receive comfort in the same way. If you love them, you'll put some effort into discovering what that is and doing it. Comfort. Because love wants to be there for you in a way that's good for you. And then let her see. The worthy life is a ministry of love. It seeks to attain a successful future for others. Verse 12, that ye, that ye, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. See, love in the worthy life doesn't say, I want to look good before God, so do what I say. I've heard preachers say that before. I have to stand before God and give an account of you. So you better figure it out so I don't look good or so I don't look bad to God. Oh, really, is that what this is all about? So that you look good when you die. That's what we're doing here. No, that's not what we're doing. I want you to look good before God. I don't need you to make me look good before God. That's not your job. Focus on yourself. Focus on your family. I want you to live the worthy life. I want you to find, embrace the worthy life. I want you to know what it is, to know how to attain it, and to keep it close to you. That's what I want. I want your success. Why? Because I love you. Because that's love. If you want to live the worthy life, you then need to treat others the same way. And then you need to look at others in your life and say, okay, you know what? Now I want you to lead the worthy life. And that person receives and says, oh, now I want you to lead the worthy life. And it just keeps being passed on from person to person to person. And that, my friend, is how God's church spread like wildfire in the first century. Because God's church was full of people with no humility, sacrifice, and love, wanting everyone else to have the success that they've already found. And I'll end with this. I don't need you to give me success. I've already got it. I don't need you to make my life worthy. I've already got it. I don't need you to make me look before God. I have already made that choice. Now, I need you to discover what I've already found. I need you to embrace what I have discovered. Will you do that? the worthy life. It does not come without cost. I told you, it will cost you something. 
but the price is well worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message, the truth you gave us this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I thank you for the truth that we've heard, the encouragement we've received from it. I pray now that as your church ponders these truths, considers them, takes them home, I pray that they would engage with the truths, not just think on them, but act on them. I ask that you'll bring to their hearts, to their minds this week, the part of this morning's message that was meant for them. Many things were said this morning, and maybe only one was needed to be heard by the one in this room. I pray that one thing that was meant for them would be stuck in their mind this week, that they would give it to you and receive from you the next step in Jesus' name. As the pianist is playing, I'd like for you to pray that yourself. My heart is your success, that you live the worthy life. I can pray it for you, and I just did. How much better for you to pray it over yourself? God, I want the worthy life. I want the life that brings you glory and brings the souls of men to your, to your throne. I want to impact positively your kingdom. So, Lord, humility, sacrifice, love, which one am I missing? Which one do I need to focus on? What part of that one? Give me the next step towards this worthy life. Pray now as the pianist plays. give wisdom to your people that they might know your heart and follow it. In Jesus' name, amen.